Welcome to this special Conversations Shelter in Place episode of the Orbital Perspective Podcast. Where we dolly zoom out to a perspective where upcoming megatrends become visible. Every day, it is more and more apparent that we are in the midst of the great transition. Everything is changing rapidly. The fundamentals of business, government, and society are being rewritten almost on a daily basis. We are truly living during a time where the riskiest course of action is to stay the course. The most hazardous path is to take the tried and true. We are also living during a time where it is becoming more and more apparent that the status quo is not working. At least it's not working for everyone. And until the status quo is working for everyone, we will do nothing more than slap temporary band-aids on our problems and our challenges. We are presently dealing with crisis after crisis. But these crises can serve as a wake-up call. They can be our call to action to incorporate the changes necessary to make us all more resilient and better equipped to deal with the future crises that will undoubtedly come our way. The Orbital Perspective is all about transcending the divisive walls that separate us and embracing the awe and wonder of our shared humanity. What all the guests on the Orbital Perspective podcast have in common is they are all able to see things from a slightly different perspective. And when we look at issues from different perspectives, we see things in stereoscopic vision. Multiple perspectives allow us to see the depth of a situation below the two-dimensional us-versus-them surface. The other thing all our guests have in common is they are all proof that you don't have to be in orbit to have the orbital perspective. Now, this is not an interview, and it's also not just a conversation between two friends. It's a conversation amongst all of us. If you're listening live, please post your questions and your comments so that we can bring you into the conversation. And if you're listening to the recorded conversation, still please join in with your comments and questions and be a part of this evolving community. Thank you for being here and being a part of this conversation from the Orbital Perspective. T-minus 17 seconds and counting. 15, 12, 11, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6. Go for main engine start. Main engine start. 2, 1, Booster ignition and liftoff of the Space Shuttle Discovery, returning to the space station, paving the way for future missions beyond. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another conversation sheltered in place. I hope this finds everyone safe and healthy and uh, navigating the crisis known as, as 2020. Um, we have a really exciting uh, conversation today. Um, the focus of our conversation is twofold. First of all, we're going to explore how universities are going back to school, how they're um, putting systems in place to help protect students and, uh, and faculty. Uh, and we're also going to talk about how COVID-19 is affecting the rest of the world. There's a lot of vulnerable communities around the world um, that are particularly uh, being affected by this uh, pandemic. Um, and we're also going to touch on how technology, uh, specifically NASA technology, is helping both with COVID-19 and also with that and all the other crises and all the other issues that the developing world is uh, dealing with. And so we'll see, we'll, we'll look uh, to seeing how, how that technology transfer is, is uh, taking place around the world. And my guest today is a renowned world expert in all of those topics. Uh, Evan Thomas is the director of the Mortensen's, Mortensen Center for, in Global Engineering at the University of Colorado at Boulder. He's a tenured associate professor, jointly appointed in the Civil, Environmental, and Architectural Engineering and the Aerospace Engineering Sciences Departments. Evan is currently a member of the NASA and USCID Severe Applied Sciences team, which we'll, I'm sure we're going to talk about. It's really exciting. Uh, Evan earned a PhD in aerospace engineering and a master's in public health. Evan's technical background is in water and air testing and treatment applied in developing communities and also in operational spacecraft. 
He founded and is the CEO of Sweet Sense Inc., which is supported by USAID and the National Science Foundation to develop and apply satellite connected sensors, monitoring drinking water services. And daily, the team is monitoring millions of people's water supplies across East Africa. As the chief operating officer of Del Agua Health, Evan conceived, designed, and directed a $25 million public health innovation in Rwanda inter intervention in Rwanda with the government of Rwanda. The program reached 350,000 households with cook stoves and 102,000 households with water filters. They operated in over 7,500 villages and uh, helped 1.6 million people in that particular case. Evan was a civil servant at the NASA Johnson Space Center in Houston, Texas. That's where we met. Uh, and he was there from 2004 to 2010. And while at NASA, Evan was an aerospace engineer working on microgravity fluid management technologies and water recovery systems for spacecraft hardware flying on the space shuttle and the International Space Station. As, and he's also the author of the Hot Off the Presses just published book, the global engineers. And it was back when uh, Evan was working at NASA that I met him. I met him when he was 21 years old. And uh, I think our first um, real important uh, interaction was he led a development trip uh, for Engineers Without Borders uh, to Rwanda that I was on. And he, as a 21 year old, uh, I think intern or co-op at the time, uh, led that. And I was really impressed with his, uh, with his leadership skills. Um, he, he is a brilliant guy. He's a good friend. Uh, together, we have built companies and nonprofits, and uh, these organizations that together we've worked on have positively impacted uh, millions of people around the world. And so with that, I hope everybody welcomes uh, Evan Thomas. Hey, Evan, how's it going? Hey, I'm good. We, you know, we could have done this in person. You know, I'm just, just down the street here, but I know that might violate some of our uh, some of our COVID policies that we're trying to promote. Well, I didn't mention that we're also, besides being good friends, we're also hiking buddies. So yeah. social. Uh, I like your shirt, by the way. Yeah, I put it on just for you, uh, of course, just in case you hadn't, you know, seen the NASA logo recently. Yeah. yeah well, they're bringing the they're bringing the old NASA logo out. The word or yeah. the old new, which which new is old is new again. That's right. So let's start off. I mean, you're you're the director of the Mortensen Center of uh, in global engineering. Um, you've got a lot of responsibilities at the University of Col of Colorado, um, and let's talk a little bit about. Um, I, I guess school starts this week, right, or next yeah, week. School, school starts Monday, so the Monday. all the freshmen have been moving in uh, with their parents just this past week. All right. So talk us through that. What what things are in place to protect the students and the faculty? Well, you know, Ron, just just as every university and every, almost every school across the country, we shut down back in March. So it's already been six months that we haven't had uh, instruction in person on campus. We sent all the students home from the dorms. Uh, international students often, in many cases, went home as well. Uh, and Boulder's been pretty quiet all summer. But we believe that in-person instruction is still an important uh, capability for a major university to have. And it's it's interesting in our particular line of work where we are simultaneously working in dozens of countries around the world. We have uh, colleagues and students and, and employees working in uh, a dozen countries, but we still value that in-person uh, teaching opportunity and those in-person collaboration opportunities. So everybody's been grounded, everybody's been learning online, but, but it, while we have seen some advantages uh, to, to being online and being virtual that we can talk about, we still think it's important to have in-person instruction. And after thousands of interviews with students and faculty and staff and, and parents, uh, this summer, the University of Colorado decided that we were gonna try to open uh, this fall. So starting Monday is the first day of the fall semester. 90% of students have at least one class that has an in-person component. So we have a, a huge amount of effort that's gone into developing online curriculum, developing online labs, uh, creating opportunities for students to take classes from anywhere in the world. You know, we're basically instantly an online university and a residential university, but 90% of students will have some in-person instruction. Uh, in, in order to keep that safe, we're taking the same precautions that uh, many cities and states and universities are taking. Masks are mandatory on campus in all public spaces. 
we need to maintain social distancing, wash hands regularly with soap and water. In the dorms, uh, people are, students are generally going to need to stay in and near their dorm with other people living in that same building. And we're going to be doing a lot of instruction, we're going to bring the instruction to the students actually in the dormitory. Uh, one cool thing is that uh, one of our faculty members in environmental engineering is tasked with testing the sewage coming out of every dorm every single day for COVID so that we can get early warning if there might be an outbreak even while people are asymptomatic. Is that a tenured, tenured faculty member? So this is, this is Creston's way of getting tenure. This is okay. basically, you know, the more, the more data he collects from sewage over this fall, the more likely tenure is going to be a breeze for Creston in a couple of years. Okay, super. <laughs> cool. All right. Yes, yeah, that's that sounds like a lot. So, what? Uh, how about what? What other testing is going on besides sewage testing? I mean, is is um, you know periodic COVID tests uh, for individuals or? So, all students that are going to be residential on campus will be tested for COVID uh, in these coming weeks if they haven't already been, along okay. with any other uh, staff that might live on campus. Our managing director for the Mortensen Center, Laura McDonald, she actually lives on campus in an apartment in the dorm, uh, so she's been tested. Uh, of course, the test is only valid up until that moment the test right. is taken, but of course it's important as thousands of students come back to campus from all over the country and all over the world. So what's what's the plan? Well, before I ask this question, I just wanna remind everybody who's tuning in, hi, uh, but also this is not a, just a conversation with Evan and I, this is a conversation with all of us. So, so please uh, you know, put your comments in, your questions in, join this conversation. Uh, we'll see your comments if you if you put them in either on uh, YouTube or Facebook. Uh, so join the conversation. Um, so what is the plan if um, there's another out, there's an outbreak on campus? What what uh, what do we do then? So the, the trick is to keep the incidence below four percent. Below four percent on a population basis, uh, we are. The public health experts indicate that that is a manageable number, that that can be managed through the medical system, uh, through quarantining and treating patients. Uh, we have two dorms set aside on campus to quarantine students that might fall ill. Above 4% is where we start to have community spread, where it is transmitting faster than you're able to essentially identify and control it. So we have a live dashboard at colorado.edu uh, where we're tracking COVID cases and reporting every single day all the test cases and the percentages so that everyone can have transparency into uh, these numbers. Above 4% is where things start getting uh, risky to stay open. Um, as of course, most of you have seen, Ron, I'm sure you've seen UNC, University of North Carolina, shut down after just a week of being open, uh, and they basically got community spread or indications that the community spread was imminent. Notre Dame uh, suspended in-class uh, in class instruction for at least two weeks. Colorado College here in Colorado has one dormitory uh, in quarantine right now. So there's both reasons to be you know, extremely cautious, but also uh, a little bit optimistic about the University of Colorado's chances to stay open. We have done a great job in the state uh, in controlling COVID. The, you know, we also have 300 days of sunshine. We can do a lot of stuff outside for the next few months. We're gonna be doing instruction outside. My lab group meets on campus, but we do it outside. A lot of sunshine, a lot of UV, a lot of air circulation. And, and Colorado just really hasn't had um, the case rate that the Southeast and East have. Uh, that being said, of course, we're not invulnerable despite the best precautions. At minimum, uh, CU will close on-campus instruction at Thanksgiving and will finish the semester online uh, through the holidays and through the new year. That's a good idea. And how many, how many students do you have uh... That, that are taking it not on not just how many students are in in-person students um, well so about 90 percent of students at cu will have some in-person instruction so that's thirty thousand students that wow. are at cu i don't know exactly how many students are uh staying at home and going to do all of their classes online in the college of engineering we have uh i was talking to the dean just yesterday i think we have about 1200 incoming freshmen We've had a few hundred students, I believe, defer for a year. So there's still going to be 
uh, CU students, but they might come next year or even in January. But we have over a thousand students that are starting their freshman year in the College of Engineering. Most of them will be living in the dorms. And our team uh, in the Mortensen Center has some responsibility for the academic experience of those students. We run the Kittredge Hall first year experience. So that's about 200 students uh, that are all engineering students. And we're helping to provide academic support, mentoring, social support, mental health, uh, a, a opportunities and accommodations and resources uh, to in a class that I teach that will capture about 80 or 90 of those first year students, but will actually be instructing in a classroom in the dorm. Awesome. So let's let's shift gears a little bit to a related subject. Um, and, and that's about uh, global engineering. And so, so I know, I mean, you know that I wrote my first book is called uh, The Orbital Perspective. And there's a chapter in there called Arrested Development. And a major, a major character in that chapter, Arrested Development, is one Evan Thomas. Uh, and um, basically the chapter talks about a lot of what's wrong in the development space. Um, and uh, I think both of us have come a long way since that book was written in our understanding of just how deeply flawed uh, the development uh, sector is, if you will. Um, and so, why don't you walk everybody through what what it, what you mean by global engineering? And and you wrote you know the book that you just wrote that just got published, uh, global the global engineers. Yeah, hold it up. With, published by Springer. <laughs> where, where where could people get that? Uh, they can they can email they can buy it online. They can also email me. Okay, all right. Um, we'll have to pop up your your email address. Uh, but but it's on Amazon though, right? I mean yeah yeah. Okay, so so walk us through global engineering. What do you what is meant by that? Well, like you said, there's been an evolution over over decades, really, of what development even is. So I'll try not to spend too much time with the history, but I think it's interesting. The, the modern field of international development came after the Second World War. So history didn't start at the Second World War and developing countries, what we consider developing countries as in low-income countries, countries that have a high degree of poverty or high degree of uh, public health um, uh, challenges that may are often related to economic um, prosperity as well. You know, history didn't start 10 years ago or 20 years ago. It started back when those countries were first subjected to resource exploitation, to slave trade, to colonization. Uh, after the Second World War, most countries divested themselves of their former colonial uh, lands and countries, and we saw independence in Central and South America and Southeast Asia and Africa. But the legacy of colonialism, the legacy of racism, the legacy of resource extraction persists with us today. Uh, the same countries that were colonized are the same countries that are still among the poorest uh, and most resource-constrained of the world. So oftentimes when you enter international development, you kind of think the clock started when you entered it and that development is a continuum, that there may be poor countries and rich countries, but that we need to develop or help develop a poorer country. When in reality, th these conditions of poverty are constructed. They have historical origins. They're not coincidence. They're not, uh, they're not just faithful. And the international development sector hasn't really acknowledged that well. You know, there, if you look at um, as I already mentioned, the poorest countries in the world are also the ones that have these historical injustices. They're also the ones that are suffering from climate change today. So it's not even necessarily about a continuum of development. Something like climate change is retrograde. So is COVID. Uh, these are conditions that were not created in these low-income countries, but these countries are suffering from the consequences. And they're often hobbled in developing any economic base or any government services that can be resilient to these changes, in part because they're paying off debt from the World Bank that was incurred back in the 80s by dictators, uh, or they're, they're forced to participate in trade agreements that limit their ability to protect local industry or to force or enforce uh, multilateral companies to pay taxes so they can provide services. So. You can't solve poverty with just projects or with products, and we can't consumer product our way out of poverty. And that's something that it took me a long time to sort of realize that as an engineer, I can't just worry about a product or a project. 
I actually need to be concerned with these historical dimensions too. So that's what global engineering is. Global engineering is simultaneously a complement to the fields of global health and development economics, but it also seeks to reach even further in terms of where the lever point is. We want to actually try to, at minimum, draw attention to the causes of poverty, if not offer solutions to the causes of poverty, and not just try to offer solutions to the symptoms of poverty. So I guess making matters worse is in a lot of these these countries, as you described, a lot of those countries are receiving uh, development aid from the West, from the U.S., in a lot of cases, that development aid is tied to the maintenance of these uh, lopsided you know, trade trade agreements. These lop, you know, uh, uh, keeping mar markets open for for U.S. goods or, or Western goods, um, and, and basically hamstringing the the very communities that were that we're trying to lift out of poverty when <laughs> the benefit that comes to the U.S. or the, or the, or the West uh, far exceeds the amount of development dollars that are going into those countries. Um, is that accurate or, or is that from your experience? Yeah, it is. And the, uh, you can talk about this in terms of financial flows. So, you know, a lot of people will say, well, we have foreign aid. You know, USAID is about $20 billion a year. UK DFID about the same size. That's foreign aid that sometimes is grants, sometimes is loans, uh, sometimes is what we call tied aid. So it, it has strings attached. Uh, sometimes it doesn't have strings attached. But even if you put aside sort of the development policy questions and how that money is allocated, let's zoom out a little bit and look at where all of the money going into and out of developing countries. And if you take all of the money that goes into low and middle income countries from high income countries, the sources are, foreign aid, philanthropy, uh, corporate investment, and remittances. So people that, that might be living outside of a country sending money back home. If you add all that money up and then you subtract from it the money that leaves the country, so that's tax avoidance, it's trade misinvoicing, it's tricks that companies can play to avoid paying taxes, it's payments on interest of World Bank debt. The capital's been paid off a long time ago, but, but interest is a tricky thing for everybody that has a mortgage, knows this. Uh, and um, and you, you take all those together, the net is that developing countries, low and middle income countries actually send more money to high income countries every year than the other way around. So, you know, we might not be having a slave trade anymore or direct uh, you know, violent resource exploitation. But in reality, low and middle income countries are net creditors to high income countries every year. And it exceeds foreign aid by about 40x. So 40 times as much money leaves a country as enters it, uh, leaves all the, the, the sum of low and middle income countries every year as enters it in foreign aid. So it's not that foreign aid is, is, is uh, bad, but it is swamped by all these other things that are happening. If you look at Africa, just sub-Saharan Africa, where about 50 of the 70 least developed countries are in the world, the net is about 20 billion a year. So you add up all the money in, subtract all the money out, it's about 20 billion a year. That might seem like a lot of money. There's about a billion people in sub-Saharan Africa. So that's about $20 is invested per person per year in Africa. It's not keeping up with, uh, with the changes that are being experienced, the biggest one being climate change. Yeah. So, hey, I'm just going to I'm just going to remind everybody, I see you out there watching. So join this conversation. We want you to be part of it. Um, and Evan, you, you talked about that. These 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 low income countries that we talk about are disproportionately affected by things like global warming. Right. But they're also potentially um, disproportionately affected by COVID-19. Can you talk a little bit about, from your experience, uh, how COVID-19 is affecting uh, low-income countries around the world? Yeah, I mean, I know in the, you know, in the early days of COVID-19, there was, in the early days, you know, five months ago. <laughs> yeah. It was like a long time ago. Uh, there was a lot of talk about how this was gonna be a wake-up call yeah. and how we were gonna do things differently and how we were all in this together. And, you know, I, I really hope those things are true in some ways, uh, but also COVID-19 is really exposing pretty, pretty rawly uh, how 
much we are protecting ourselves. And we see that even in the United States where the lowest income people are the ones that are having the highest rate of COVID-19, partly because of pre-existing health conditions that are themselves often connected to social determinants of health. They often look like there might be a, a ethnic or genetic component because you'll see African-Americans with a much higher rate of COVID-19. It's nothing to do with biology. It's nothing to do with genetics. It has to do with the fact that in the United States, African-Americans have poor health outcomes because they also are poorer because of historical injustices and present racism. So we see this globally too. Uh, in Africa, where right now, if you look at the numbers, it actually doesn't look like COVID-19 is spreading that rapidly in Africa. And there's a lot of different theories as to why. There, even before everything hit us back in March, there's just generally still less travel to and from Africa. Uh, and so maybe, maybe it isn't spreading as quickly or as much yet. Another idea that's been raised is that it's a relatively young population. You have a high fraction of people under the age of 30 or 20. Uh, another is climate. You know, the flu doesn't transmit as rapidly in South America or in uh, Africa as it does in northern latitudes. But another possible explanation is that testing is really low. Uh, the WHO is rationing tests to all nations, and some countries are really getting us very hundreds of tests at most, not even thousands or millions of tests. So it's very possible that uh, testing is low and that actually COVID incidence is high. We don't really know yet. Uh, the WHO and the CDC are investigating this. But whatever the rate is, whether or not it's low or high, the WHO, the CDC have told us all that the number one thing that we can do to slow and stop the spread of COVID is to wash our hands with soap and water. Okay, fine. So not everybody has soap and water. In Kenya, in rural Kenya, only 10% of homes have access to soap and water. In rural Ethiopia, only 4% of homes have access to, to soap and water. So it's 2020, Ron. I mean, I've been giving this talk, not the COVID talk, but a version of this talk for, for a while, uh, you know, 20 years already myself. And, you know, in, I used to say in, it's the year 2000 and almost, you know, over a billion people don't have access to clean water. Well, it's the year 2020 and a billion people don't have access to clean water. And 2 billion people don't have safe sanitation and 3 billion people use firewood for their daily energy needs and half the world's population lives on less than $5.50 a day. And eight people in the world have more wealth than half the world's population. And 20 years ago, it was 40 people. So some of these problems are getting worse, not better. And, you know, I don't want to be a pessimist, you know, in contrast to an optimist, but I think we need to really actually acknowledge that the way we're doing things is not making things better for a lot of people. No, is, is making that obvious. It's 2020 and only 10% of people in rural Kenya have soap to try to slow the spread of COVID right now. So, so those things you listed when you started out this, this part of the conversation, talking about how you know we, we thought COVID-19 would be a wake-up call and that we're all in this together, and you, you know, hope that that might be true. Well, th those things are true. I mean, COVID-19 is a wake-up call. Whether we hit the snooze button or not is another story. And it is true that we're all in this together. And so, so when you bring up those examples of, of like Sub-Saharan Africa and, you know, having, having processes in place and, and tearing down the, the restrictive and, and the very things that are holding us back from being able to, to allow those those countries to develop on their own to, or with assistance, of course, but to develop on their own and to be self-sufficient, uh, um, th those very those very systems are hurting us by keep, keep, keeping those in place. Because if you have a more resilient sub-Saharan Africa that could better uh, ward off uh, the next outbreak, right? If you have if you have a part of the planet that has an outbreak, a pandemic. That's going to affect the, the the rest of the world. There's going to be vectors coming out of there that that are going to go around the world. And so, doing things to to basically right the situation, to 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 overturn those systemic things that are holding us back as as a species. Um, once we once we overturn those things, it not only helps the people that are in South Saharan South <laughs> Sub-Saharan Africa, for instance, it helps the entire world. And so that cliche that we're all in this together is is certainly 
true. And it's certainly something that we need to work to. But a lot of times we don't see that. We don't see the, the interconnectedness. We don't see the inter, interdependencies that exist. And I mean, we could have the same discussion about, about global warming as well. But after saying all that, which is kind of pessimistic, what would you suggest is something a person can tell other people to inspire hope? I'm going to ask the pessimist that. <laughs> you know, there are, I'm not calling you a pessimist, but self there, self are, there, there are there are remedies to these challenges, and they're not without some pain. Uh, but it turns out, Ron, we can turn off our economy. It turns out we can ground all the airplanes. It turns out we can uh, let nature come back. We managed to do it pretty quickly, and it turns out we are willing to pay for it. Two trillion dollars so far, just in the United States. So it turns out, you know, this idea that we can't afford to fight climate change. Well, I bet we can. I think I think we probably could have just paid for it with the same resource. Uh, we can do other things too. We can forgive debt incurred uh, unjustly. We can support what you know some would call climate reparations of actually paying for the damage that is being caused by climate change. And as you suggested, Ron, these are all investments in the planet. These are not gifts. Uh, some of them might be reparations. They might actually uh, address injustices that have been caused. So it's not necessarily benevolence either. Um, but Ron, I got a question for you about that. I mean, we often as a planet have not invested the small amount of money or, or resource over a longer period of time to prevent the crisis from happening. And so often war, you know, you're, you're a military veteran, you have a book coming out, Floating in Darkness Soon, that talks about, you know, kind of your contemporary experience being uh, a fighter. So often war is a consequence of, of failures to invest in people, to invest in economies, to invest in, in societies, and they get so badly degraded that people turn to violence. This is happening in East Africa right now. Al-Shabaab is powerful in East Africa, not coincidentally, not because of religion, but because of drought. Because climate change is making drought almost an annual occurrence now, and people are pressured, and their livestock die, and their crops die, and young people, young men, are have nowhere to turn except for an organization like Al-Shabaab that offers them hope. So we can also offer hope, but we actually have to invest in, in, in that hope too. Ron, what do you think? I mean, the, the, where, what can we do to prevent things like war or terrorism in terms of, of investing in these solutions up front? Yeah, I, I, I think you've already stated that. I mean, I, I've, I'm someone, as you mentioned, who has fought in combat. Um, you know, I, I was in Desert Storm. Um, and, you know, I saw firsthand the horrors of war. Uh, and even back then, even before I was in, you know, my first combat mission, uh, I, I, I knew that war was humanity's biggest failure. If we if we were shooting missiles or dropping a bomb, then we we royally screwed up somewhere along the way. Um, and so, you know, I mean, there's a there's a, a big history of, of that. And if you go back to probably every every armed conflict it 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 was it, it was precipitated from a breakdown of 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 diplomacy it was a breakdown in in investment it was in a breakdown in being able to have a vision for the future um and we you know we might have had excuses for this in the past we might have had you know there there was the old way of doing things you know we lived in this very two dimensional uh, world that that is defined by you know the map of the world that hangs in classrooms around the world that have these you know clearly defined uh, boundaries and borders and this is mine and that's yours and and everything else but that's not the reality of the world that we live in the, you know the reality of the world that we live in a better image than the, than the map that hangs in the classrooms around the world is the image of Earthrise that was taken by the Apollo 8 astronauts that shows the true unity of the world that we live in that what happens on one side of the world affects everything else what happens upstream in a river affects everything downstream in a river what happens in the one atmosphere above one city affects every city uh, and what happens in a in a in a virus when a new virus comes on the on the on the scene in one part of the world, it affects everything else. So we no longer have the excuse to say that we don't realize how interdependent and how interconnected we, we all are. It is, it is uh, painfully 
obvious right now. And so uh, I, I still believe wholeheartedly that war is, is, a, is a sign of failure. Uh, and I think in some cases we've, we've taken that as the first step uh, as opposed to the, the, the step of last resort. Uh, unfortunately, I still think we live in a world where occasionally it is the step of last resort or the, the path of, la of, of last resort that we have that we sometimes have to take. But that's probably 0.0001% of the conflicts that we see right now. I think we're way too a lot of the conflict, a lot of the violent military conflicts that we see right now are simply an extension of our own failures to to um, look beyond the next election cycle or the next shareholder report. It's, it's basically uh, a result of our short-sightedness and not be, being willing, first of all, to, not, not, having, not having the, the humility to realize that we don't have all the answers, to step outside of our, the, uh, our own arrogance and our, 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 our own uh, arrogance-induced um, um, lack of knowledge, right? Our, our, to step outside of that and to see, to see a brighter future and to, and to make those investments that, you know, you know, the, the old saying, uh, an ounce of, of, what is it? An ounce of preventive medicine? <laughs> what is it? Ounce of prevention is worth a, a pound, yeah, of, pound cure. of cure. Right. So we're into the pound of cure and that usually comes in the form of high explosives. Right. And that is so much more expensive, so much more disruptive, so much more restrictive in our ability to advance and evolve a, as a species. Uh, and it's, it's one of the big things that's holding us back. It, it stems from ignorance. It stems from uh, short-sightedness. Uh, it's, it's, and, and above all, it, it, it extends from a false sense of separation until we realize that there is no them, there's only us. So what happens if, you know, like say a natural disaster happens on the other side of the world, it's not all those poor people over there. That's us. That's happening to us as a species. Uh, and even even look at looking at countries in, in the in the model that you talked about, the low income countries and the and the high income countries, um, <laughs> the very structure that makes the high income countries have all their revenue and the low income countries being uh, immersed in poverty, those very structures are what's holding us back as a species and what's what leads to the dis destructive, you know, two steps backwards of, of violent conflict. I mean, it's worse than that wrong. The, the structures created those income inequalities. The, right, that's my point. Yeah, those, those eight people that own more wealth than half the world's population, that didn't just happen. You know, that was created. But I think you're right, Ron. I mean, NASA, of all institutions, you know, have, has taught us or has given people this visceral opportunity to realize how interconnected they are. You mentioned Earthrise, which was a revolutionary picture. Uh, astronauts like yourself have taken pictures of the planet, you know, are taking them every single day. The, the space station's been continuously inhabited. The last time all humans were on Earth was in 2000s, right? Um, and and there's other ways that NASA has is helping to draw attention to these these inequities. Uh, one example is through remote sensing. So we have all of these satellites out there in space. Some of them point outward at the stars and at the solar system and the planets, but most of them point back down at us. Most of them are up there studying the earth. Uh, and a lot of those satellites are put up for specific economic aims or national interests, but they're, they're circling every place on earth every night, or they're circling the planet every 90 minutes. They go over every place on earth every couple of days. So we're collecting data from everywhere in the world. And that data is useful uh, for, for everybody. And Dan Irwin, he's a friend of yours, he's a friend of mine. He's at the Marshall Space Flight Center in Alabama. He realized this a while ago and started a program called SEVERE. It's a joint initiative between USAID and NASA to take all that NASA satellite data and, and meld it with expertise local expertise all over the world. So we're part of that team right now. We work with a team of geospatial experts in Nairobi, Kenya at the Regional Center for Mapping of Resources for Development. We take sensor data that we're collecting on groundwater wells all over East Africa. We're currently monitoring 3 million people's water supplies daily with our sensors and working with our colleagues at RCMRD and with our colleagues at NASA, we link that with satellite data and we try to improve drought forecasting, 
famine forecasting and groundwater demand forecasting. So that's a huge asset. Those satellites were paid for by the American public and the data that's being generated is benefiting everywhere, everyone in the world. Another example, astronaut photography. Maybe Ron, actually I'll tell you what we're doing with it, but maybe you could tell everybody else first you know, about the cupola and taking pictures from it and what you're seeing and, and, and uh, what everybody does up there when they're snapping those pictures. Yeah, so, so believe it or not, there's uh, very, very little uh, time scheduled on the ISS for astronauts to actually take photographs. I'd say 99% of all the photographs that astronauts have taken from space were done in their own free time. Even the Earthrise photo was, <laughs> if you listen to the audio recording, when that photo was taken, they're joking, hey, don't take that, it's not scheduled. You know? <laughs> so, so yeah, so we, that's a pastime. Uh, and, but uh, a lot of, a lot of the astronauts, it's not just a pastime, it's they're trying to document the condition on the earth and document it from a human perspective. You know, you know, sens sensors, un uncrewed sensors uh, can take pictures, but when you put a human in the loop and, you know, you can really, you know, get the right composition and the right emotion to, to a photograph, because I think that's part of the whole thing, you know, you, because you, to communicate what's happening, you know, some, some of that's kind of an art form. Uh, and so, uh, I know that on my last mission, I took literally 25,000 photographs uh, while I was up there. And a lot of that was photographs uh, of areas that have, you know, some type of issue going on, whether it was an uh, environmental, human-made human, human -made environmental damage, uh, forest fires, wildfires, uh, conflict, you know, armed conflict, uh, a lot of that was. And, and part of what I was capturing is, is a sobering contradiction, a contradiction between the un, undeniable incredibly unexplainable beauty of our planet uh, and then contracting that with or contrasting that with the unfortunate realities of life on the ground uh, for a significant number of people like like you brought out brought out like those folks that don't have clean water etc uh, and so yeah so so I mean that that, that should be <laughs> a good well, foundation to, to, to jump off from and, and one other technical detail there is you know the station is flying over the planet at at 17,000 miles per hour, is that right? 17,500. I know. Uh, <laughs> Don't you have a PhD in aer aerospace engineering? I, I, wanted you to, I wanted you to get in there. Um, <laughs> and, you know, the cupola is a window, so it's, it's two, you're 200 miles above the planet, you're looking down, you've got a digital camera, but you know, if you're looking straight down, that might be a swath of a couple right. hundred miles. Right. If you look out at the horizon, it might be thousands of miles that you're looking at. Right. So you and all of your other astronaut buddies have taken millions and millions of photos. The only information, so there's an office at the Johnson Space Center uh, that manages the astronaut photography. It's all public images. Anybody can look at these images and they're geotagged with the nadir, where, where the station is directly over the earth, but they don't have other information about what's in the frame. Um, and so we are working with that astronaut photography office now to take our context, which is looking at drought resilience in the United States and also in Africa, and working with citizen science and citizen science networks to geotag them, to take these pictures, to figure out what's in the picture, in particular rivers, then create data out of these pictures that we can then use to track river volumes and to look at how river volumes change over time. Now, rivers in the United States are highly instrumented, so we're going to use the instruments that are, on, that are here in the rivers to calibrate our, our data from the astronaut photography and then apply that to East Africa where the rivers are not nearly as well instrumented so that we can have a new data set that can tell us something about changing rainfall patterns and changing water availability in East Africa. And it's a big deal. Climate change is real. It's, it's causing droughts to happen nearly every year now in some areas of Africa. Uh, so drier places are getting drier, but also wetter places are getting wetter. So in some regions, we care about drought and the implications of drought. In other regions, we care about floods. And in some places, it's both at the same time. So in Rwanda, we're working with friends of ours at Bridges Prosperity who are installing pedestrian footbridges all over the country. And these pedestrian footbridges link villages that are isolated by flooding. And they create a, a literal bridge that allows a village to have safe access to hospitals and schools and markets and other services, services 
even when there's a flood. And we are working with them to study these bridges, to study the economic and health impacts, uh, both experimentally, but also using geospatial data so that we can try to model how climate is interacting with human prosperity and human health in this in this area. Yeah, let me let me pop this up because I think this is uh, this is from Ron Rosano uh, talking about that we've had twenty years of continuously occupied uh, a continuously occupied space station. Um, so if you're 19 and a half years old or younger, people have been living in space every minute uh, of your of your life. Um, Which means that you're the first people in history to yeah. live on a planet or be born on a planet where not all humans are on it at the same time. That's right. And um, so there, there's a there's a lot we could we could drill in there, uh, I think, because the, the technology transfer you talk about is is actually a two-way technology transfer, right? And so when we, when you look at the technology on the International Space Station, it's not designed uh, for for you know like the surface of Mars, right? It's 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 it requires a lot of resupply from from the Earth. It's, it's high maintenance. Um, you know, if a part breaks, you're going to have to wait wait a few months, and a part will be, if, if there's not one already on this on board, you know, one will be flown up, and so that's the way we operate. When we go to Mars, we're not going to be able to do that. And so the very engineering principles that go into engineering for the developing world, uh, like it has to be robust, it can't require a lot of maintenance, it has to operate in hostile environments, um, has to be you know fairly simple to operate. Those same techniques need to be applied in designing future spacecraft that are going to go to Mars. So it's not only is technology flowing from like NASA or ESA or, or the space program in general to the developing world for things like water purification and things like that, there's there's a technology transfer or, or technology philosophy that's being transferred in the, uh, the opposite direction too. So the, the whole point that I'm trying to make here is that it's mutually beneficial. It's not just one party giving knowledge and expertise to the other party. It's both parties benefiting from the, their relationship together. And that pretty much applies across the board, uh, or it can, it, it should apply across the board. Yeah, I mean, there's a bunch of great examples, but there's also cautionary notes. You know, the, the um, then this is basically exactly what our program, the Morton Center in Global Engineering is concerned with. We are, we are dedicated to to, to using technology and developing technology. We're engineers, we like tech. Uh, we are also dedicated to trying to uh, be part of a solution rather than not participating. Um, so you're already a few decision points in, but still, even after you said technology can be good and we want to, we want to be part of a solution, you, we also have to be careful not to be technology evangelists and think that technology solve all of our problems. We will not build and manufacture consumer products that end poverty, unless we also end unfair trade barriers, you know, these debt issues, engage in climate reparations, engage in true, much more expensive and much more meaningful uh, remedies. Expensive uh, in the short term. Yes, absolutely. Expensive in the short term. Yeah, and, expen and increasingly expensive because we keep kicking the ball down the road. Right. Um, but technology can play a role. Uh, satellite imagery and satellite data, cell phones, uh, water treatment systems, sanitation systems. Another example uh, that comes out of NASA is oxygen concentration. So a little bit of background here. Um, Apollo 1 was the first major accident of, the, of NASA and the U.S. space program. Uh, the Apollo mission, the Apollo capsules were pressurized with 100% oxygen at the time. And so stuff that is normally like here in this room, it's about 30% oxygen. And that's what 30% oxygen at sea level is what humans, you know, easily can, can, can survive with. But if you want to pressurize a space capsule, you, you can pressurize it to only five PSI instead of 14 PSI and 100% oxygen. So it feels the same. It's actually the same partial pressure of oxygen, but it's 100% oxygen. The problem was that things that aren't flammable at 30% oxygen are flammable at 100% oxygen. And the astronauts on Apollo 1 died when a spark, a electrical short, uh, ignited the cabin. And so the space shuttle was designed to operate at just normal air. So you had the same air in your, in your shuttle that was in Florida. And you could even make up, you know, the shuttle leaks a little bit 
Um, and you could make up oxygen in the air because of your fuel cells. So you would actually have oxygen on board. You would generate energy and water and also have oxygen as a spare. Now on the space station, we recycle the water, but you can't, and we uh, absorb out the CO2, but you have to bring up tanks of oxygen to make up the oxygen that's leaking out. And you know that's a potential fire hazard that's very carefully handled. When somebody is ill, especially if they have a high fever or respiratory issues, such as COVID-19, but also things that might happen to an astronaut on the space station, you might need supplemental oxygen. You've seen people on supplemental oxygen. In a typical hospital in the US, that will be an oxygen tank. So that's compressed oxygen feeding a tube in somebody's nose. You don't want compressed oxygen as supplemental up on the station. It can increase the oxygen level on the station to unsafe levels. So NASA and the Johnson Space Center, friends of ours down there, have spent decades developing oxygen concentrators that take air, absorb the oxygen component out of the air, and then later desorb it back to somebody. And this team at Johnson Space Center have developed a oxygen concentrator that delivers over 99% pure oxygen uh, to somebody, to a patient without, without oxygen tanks. So COVID-19 has put a lot of people on ventilators, a lot of people on CPAP machines, a lot of people on supplemental oxygen. And supplemental oxygen is not available even in rural remote areas in the US. And it's, it, the supply chain is almost non-existent in rural areas in developing countries. You know, you have to have trucks going around with oxygen tanks. It just doesn't happen. So this is a great example of a breakthrough technology that USAID is now in talks with NASA about adapting this NASA technology to create a product that can provide medical grade oxygen in remote rural areas all over the world without needing an oxygen supply chain. It's a potentially revolutionary technology. Yeah, so uh, some, some, some uh, news for hope, right? <laughs> Yeah, and it just, it's just caution, right? So technology is important, and yeah. there's lots of, there's lots of uh, room for technologists and engineers uh, to make a difference, but, it, but the technology has to be put into a historical context, and it has yeah. to be used to address real root causes, not just symptoms. Right. I think the main point is that because there's there's a lot of people that talk about, you know, the post-scarcity existence when we when we uh, get to a, to a, a, a place of abundance where everything is free and, and, you know, we, we're living in utopia. Um, and all of that is, is theoretically going to come because of Moore's law and, and, and this incredible increase in technology. None of that's going to happen if we don't participate in that. And by participate in, in that, I mean that we need to, there's systemic things there's structural things in our society that are preventing that is a possibility we could get to that world but not with the, the present structure that we have that that basically restricts us um that that's a winner take all type of mindset that's a short-sighted mindset that's not willing to invest in peace it rather it would rather invest in in you know manufacturing weapons <laughs> as a solution right so we really need degrowth i mean it's been taken as gospel for a long time that growth is good that GDP has to keep going up, that people need more and more stuff. Uh, that's not consistent with the finite resources on our planet. It would take, using our current economic model, it will take 200 years to get everybody in the world above $5.50 a day of income. And it would use many times more natural resources than we currently have, uh, way beyond a sustainable carrying capacity of the earth. We actually need degrowth. We need to shrink our footprint. The United States is the single greatest emitter of carbon uh, in all time. Uh, we're, we're exceeded on a yearly basis now by China, but they have three times the population. So on a per capita basis, Americans consume more energy and create more emissions than anybody else in the world. It's not, we don't have to be that way. Um, and this isn't about you know, throwing out all your stuff and uh, you know, going and living in the woods. We can maintain a high quality of life but help everybody on the planet have a high quality of life. If we shrink a little bit, a lot of other people can, can grow a lot. Well, one of the root causes of that problem is, is, the, uh, is the, based on what we actually measure, because we tend to put systems in place to maximize what we're trying to measure. In this case, you, you, know, you mentioned uh, GDP, right? 
but GDP is not a really good measure of of societal health, is it? I mean, it's not it's not a good measure of well being. And as you said, you know, if GDP basically increasing our our economy, our our politicians are trying to increase GDP year after year. That's the measure of their success, right? Or one of the key measures of their success is how much that they can increase GDP. That means increasing the amount of exploitation of resources. It's, it's how much cons- cons- manufacturing consumption uh, that we do. So it encourages massive consumption. It encourages things like built-in obsolescence into, into, into products so that they have to be replaced every few years. Uh, but that that is not a good measure of... of the strength of a society, of the health of a society, of the well-being of the of the members of the society, and so I think one of the the main thing and one of the first things we need to do is change what we measure. You know, <laughs> and and as you point out, if if year after year after year, you, you know the the policymakers are being judged on how much they can increase the amount of resources that we're exploiting to increase our production, and we live on a planet of finite resources, if you take that ex- extrapolation out, not very far in the future, it leads to a crash. I mean, we <laughs> we basically can't keep that up forever. So you can't have infinite growth on a planet of finite resources. I mean, it's just common sense. Yeah. I mean, the World Bank, which is uh, not an organization that is you know prone to hyperbole uh, or to questioning the status quo, the World Bank estimates that 100 million people will be pushed back into poverty over the coming decades because of climate change. Uh, you could take that as a very conservative estimate. Yeah. So again, I think what we need to, what this COVID-19 could be a wake up call for is those aren't those poor people over there. That's happening to us as a species that together as a species, we need to be able to, to, to overcome that because because our, our, our problems don't exist in a vacuum and our solutions can't either. I mean, we can't have siloed stovepiped solutions to planetary problems. Yeah, the problem is that, you know, well-intentioned, uh, well-meaning people can disagree about the right solution. You know, the solutions are not necessarily totally self-evident. And unfortunately, there's a lot of not necessarily as well-intentioned uh, organizations too that are you know protecting and uh, and capitalizing on some of these conditions. But you know I want to also add a little bit of um, optimism to this too. You know one thing that COVID nineteen has taught us and taught our team is you know simultaneously we still believe in in person instruction. We still believe in in person collaborations is where the best ideas come from uh, from those like offhand conversations. I mean, all these conferences that are going online, it's basically my worst nightmare because I'm not sure how many people go to conferences really for hearing the the paper. It's about talking to the speaker after she presents the paper and talking in the hallway uh, and making new and and revitalizing existing collaborations. So we're still, we're still a, you know, a a, a in real life uh, uh, people, but at the same time, you know, we've been able to recruit and support students now just in the past six months, just since COVID started, who instead of having to travel to the United States and live in Boulder to learn about working internationally, they're going to stay in Kenya. They're going to stay in Egypt. Uh, they're going to live and work in Rwanda and be students of ours here at the University of Colorado in Boulder. And not only does that open up opportunity for everyone and, and improves collaborations, but it builds real capacity. Um, one of our students, Dennis, is a uh, expert, geospatial expert, who works in Kenya and is supported by USAID and RCMRD for the work I mentioned earlier. But he's also a PhD student with us, but he's not here right now. He's in Kenya and he's going to stay there and he's going to do his PhD at Colorado from Kenya on work in Kenya and in Rwanda. So we see a lot of opportunity uh, that that technology and COVID have actually sort of laid bare as opportunities to really improve global collaborations. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think that's a good example of, you know, I, I, I started out this episode like I do every episode with, you know, basically telling everybody about your bio, right? And I think your your bio, although it's inc- amazingly impressive, uh, doesn't do you justice, <laughs> I don't think, because um, you have throughout your whole life uh, not only dedicated your life to making the world a better place, 
but to to not accept the status quo and not to not to accept the tried and true or, or I need to put those in air quotes tried and true uh, you know ways to do that so so basically you've you've spent your whole career thinking outside the box um, or, or realizing that there there actually is no box <laughs> and to look for innovative solutions for instance you know we you and I co-founded uh, man energy limited and and the Part of that company's legacy is that you wrote the methodology that the UN presently uses to award carbon credits for the purification of water, right? And so, to use it, yeah, we were the first to we were the first to take existing methodologies that uh, were designed to reduce biomass use, uh, so wood use, and then adapt it to water treatment. So we took something that was designed to help address climate change. We were able to take private investment and apply it to what ultimately was drinking water treatment. We reached four and a half million people in Kenya back in 2010, working with Vestergaard Franson. We reached 1.6 million people in Rwanda, working with uh, Del Agua a few years ago. Um, you know, one of the things that I've found, I think you found it too, Ron, is that different, different types of institutions are good at different things. You know, NASA is extraordinary at certain things. So is USAID. Small nonprofits can be really good at different things too. Companies, can be really useful at driving forward innovation and technology and attracting investment. Universities can be great at research. And most people, you know, stick within one of those, are, are really good at one of those things. I'm not really good at any of those things. I'm kind of okay at a couple of those things. And it's been, I found it really useful to be, you know, the best entrepreneur in a room of professors and the best professor in a room of entrepreneurs and try to take the best of both worlds and others and combine them in ways that can advance uh, impact and scale that any single institution is not really well equipped to do by themselves. Yeah, and I think I think one of the threads that, that flows through all of that is basically evidence-based, science-based, data-based uh, processes. For instance, you know, all of those millions of people that now have clean water because you wrote the methodology and we, we turned that into a, into a mechanism to provide clean water. You know, a, a lot of organizations, a lot of people would say, okay, we, we provided clean water, our job is done here, not you. You said, well, we're gonna roll in on top of that uh, public health study to see what the impact, the actual impact is. What is the actual impact of providing the clean water, access to clean water to these communities. And can you speak to that a little bit about what was found and, and why that's so important to, to be able to measure your success with data and science? Yeah, so, you know, many international health interventions uh, have had, you know, either not been able to show their impact or have not been able to sustain an impact. And our program in Rwanda, for example, you know, was not in any ways perfect, but it advanced a model where there was uh, revenue tied to continued support of household health products, like cook stoves and water filters. It was a $25 million effort uh, across the country. And we spent almost $2 million on a health impact randomized control trial run by Emory University, Tom Claussen down there. And Tom and his team saw that our program reduced diarrhea among children under five by 30% and reduced respiratory disease among children under five by 25%. Um, I remember one time, Ron, you heard those numbers and you're like, well, why is it 50% or why is it 100%? But those are actually really good numbers. And, you know, we can't solve... Um, the reason, the actual reason is there's lots of different ways that you get diarrhea and respiratory disease. So when we clean up the water and we clean up the air, you know, we delete some exposure uh, pathways, but not all of them. So, you know, 25 to 30% reductions in respiratory disease and diarrhea translates to hundreds of children's lives saved right. and thousands and thousands of avoided years of illness right. uh, that can translate into prosperity and happiness and productivity. Yeah, and diarrhea uh, in, the, in children under the age of five in impoverished communities is not a nuisance. It's, it's a, in a lot of cases, a death sentence. Right? Yeah, these are what kill people. You know, 99% of the children who die under the age of five every year were born in a developing country. And two of the leading causes of those deaths are dirty air and dirty water, yeah. even in 2020. Well, on that really somber note, I'm gonna I'm gonna pop this back up uh, from from Maya, 
And I'm going to give one answer to that question, and that's Evan Thomas. <laughs> so, I mean, there are there are brilliant people in the world like Evan who are devoting their lives to, to making the world a better place, to making uh, the way – what I like to say is to help make the life on our planet as beautiful as it looks from space and and doing it in a way that um, – is not a band-aid. So, so Evan, you're not you're not looking for band-aids and short-term solutions. You're looking for real systemic change to improve life. And and I do think COVID-19 is a wake-up call. I do think it's exposing a lot of the fallacies and a lot of the limitations of our of our development space. And and uh, you know, it's it's identifying um, walls and barriers that are preventing us from from progressing and evolving as a species. And and I just wanted to you know. In closing, thank you for all that you're doing there, and and to say that everybody should read your book, The Global Engineers, um, and check out Sweet Sense. Uh, what's the website for Sweet Sense? Uh, SweetSensors.com. And Ron, you know, thanks for those kind words. But really, you know, I'm doing this interview with you because everyone else on the team is is too busy actually doing this work. You know, we our team is made up of people living in in depending on how you count it, dozens of countries around the world. We have hundreds of students involved, hundreds of professionals involved. The network is big, and these are all people that have dedicated their careers to trying to be part of the solution. Yeah. Well, thanks to, thanks to everybody on the team and, and everybody else who's, who's working so hard. Good luck uh, with the new semester at CU Boulder, um, and uh, good luck with everything you're doing around the world. Cool. And, uh, nice to see you. Good luck. We're, we're, we're all counting on you. <laughs> and thanks to everybody who's, who tuned in. And uh, please tune in next week and send your keep your comments and questions coming even after the show. Uh, and we'll try as best we can to answer. So see you next week, everybody. Cheers. Thank you for joining us during this conversation from the orbital perspective. And thank you for being a part of an emerging unity on our planet. We are strongest when we are aligned around the truth of our underlying unity. Together, we are unstoppable and can build a positive, restorative future, a future that we would all want to be a part of. Please subscribe to the Orbital Perspective podcast and follow us on social media. Thank you for all that you're doing and all that you will do to help make life on our planet as beautiful as it looks from space. Mm -hmm.